Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Charlotte Dunn joins the show again. On July 26, 2021, Dr. Dunn joined the show and we had a conversation about the main events that occurred after King Alexander III of Macedon died in terms of succession. And then on August 3rd, 2021, Dr. Dunn joined the show again, and we had a conversation about one of the central figures in Alexander's life, Ptolemy I, and more specifically, we spoke about the rise of the Ptolemaic dynasty that largely pertained to Egypt. In today's episode, we're going to pivot the geography from the last episode, which, as I mentioned, focused on Egypt. In today's episode, we're going to speak about Greece after King Alexander III of Macedon's life. Dr. Dunn is lecturer in classics, history and classics, in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania, based in Australia. She co-authored a monograph with a past guest on the show, Dr. Pat Wheatley of the University of Otago, entitled Demetrius the Besieger, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Dunn joins the show today from Tasmania. Welcome back on the show, Charlotte. Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for that. It's great to be back with you once more. It's great to connect with you again, Charlotte. So to create sufficient background and context for the conversation, Charlotte, and then we'll work our way into the the details, I want to, I want to start with a... Uh, more of a, a, a geographic uh, question. So at the point when Alexander died, what would have been the geographic demarcation of the kingdom of Macedon at that point in time? Macedon, Macedonia. And and then what, uh, in now, now we're, we're going to speak more about the, the Greek region. So I want to bring, bring that into this question as well. So maybe call it two questions. Maybe I'll get to three questions by the end of this uh, <laughs> segment. But, let, let's, and, but let's zoom it in as well. So what was the overall geographic demarcation? But then, and, then, and then how would the Greek region pertain to that? And can you, can you treat a bit in your response as well what the geopolitical environment at a high level would have been in the Greek region by this point in time. So by the point in time when Alexander III's life was complete. Right, excellent question, Andrew. But I think this is really important to, to just begin with um, and for, for all of our listeners. So of course, we think of today as Greece as a, you know, a country, a united uh, country. But of course, back in Alexander's time or of during his lifetime or at the time of his death, uh, Greece at this point was still essentially those separate Greek city-states. Now, of course, uh, the political question is really important here as well, because although they are these individual Greek city-states, they are now, of course, under the sort of banner or aegis of the current king of Macedon. So politically, they are uh, in some ways allowed to administer their personal civic matters uh, to, to whichever form they, they preferred. Um, obviously, Athens is famously a democracy, uh, but other city-states had a, you know, various 
political structures and power structures and the way that they administered themselves was uh, this slight variation there. But of course, certainly by this time, uh, they are all uh, under Alexander's control and sort of, they only have independence up to a point. They still are at the discretion of the Macedonian king. Um, so we'll leave that there for a moment there. But when we're thinking about geographically what this encompassed, uh, if you think about Greece today and sort of that, um, where the Aegean Sea is and the Ionian Sea, if we're thinking about that kind of area of the world, the Mediterranean, so what we think of maybe are the, the major Greek city-states, so Athens, of course, there. Um, in the Peloponnese, we have Sparta as well. Uh, and of course, there's many smaller uh, little islands dotted around the Aegean Sea there. Now, Macedonia is the, the actual region itself would be further to the north of that. So if we, if we go up from Athens, uh, we hit Thebes as well, another very famous city that many people might be familiar with. Um, and if we go further up, we're getting into uh, what's the, what would be described in ancient world as Thessaly. Um, and then sort of to the north and the top there, we have Macedonia. Uh, so that's sort of the geographical region. Now, on the other side of that, where we kind of have, um, I suppose, modern day Turkey, so that kind of coastline there. We also had a number of Greek cities that were at various points under um, Persian control, for example, and this of course was one of the major things that Alexander sought to campaign against. So part of his reason for even beginning this war against the Persians in the first place, his campaign was uh, of course revenge against the Persians, but also for the freedom of these Greek city-states that were all along the coast there. Um, so by 323 BCE, if you recall when this was the point when Alexander the Great died, um, uh, rather unexpectedly at just the age of 32, uh, all of these places were normally under Macedonian control there. What the, the various islands in the, in, you mentioned the, uh, the Ionian Sea, for instance, and the Aegean Sea, um, what uh, what would where would their allegiance lie in this period of time uh well there were quite a number of them and we do hear of them at various points sort of uh being part of um various leagues so famously we have the league of corinth there which alexander's father philip ii was actually the person who uh, began this. And so the idea of the League of Corinth, of course, was it came about after Philip II's, I guess, campaigns to bring the various Greek city states under his control. So just going back a little bit further to set the scene here, uh, during the course of the Peloponnesian War, which was, of course, again, uh, majorly between Athens and Sparta, we have this kind of series of conflicts that go on for, for a huge number of years. So sort of between 431 down to 404 BC, we have the Peloponnesian War. Now, this, of course, was a huge drain on all of the city-states who were brought into this. There's a huge drain of resources, a huge loss of life, of course, and this continually weakened the, the major powers at Athens and Sparta in particular. And while this is happening at the same time, the Macedonians are, for the most part, haven't had a huge amount to do with the other places, but 
we sort of see the, the beginning of the career of Philip and the rise of Philip. So he makes a number of reforms to Macedonia itself, and then he goes on a bit of a campaign, which uh, then bringing everything under control. So he has um, a numerous victories doing this. Um, he, he goes to uh, various places uh, that I've mentioned geographically. So we've got sort of Thessaly, we have um, various wars that take place during um, during this time, this, these few years, this is um, much of this happening while Alexander is still a child, of course. Uh, he doesn't attempt to go into central Greece at this time, but by 336 BCE, uh, sorry, rather 338 BCE, pretty much at that stage, all of those Greek city-states had come under the control of Philip. This was marked by a very um, important battle called the Battle of Chironea. Um, so at this point, we have the League of Corinth there. And what the League of Corinth did was bring everything under control of um, Philip II, who was now going to be the leader of the Greeks. Um, they acknowledged this. They were supposed to uh, supply, um, I suppose, supply military support, um, and they, they agreed to never wage war against one another unless it was to suppress uh, any of the Greek cities uh, from rebelling against Macedonian control, essentially. So they were committed to supporting Philip. Um, now, of course, on the very eve of starting this campaign, Philip was assassinated, so that power transfers to Alexander. Um, but we have this Greek um, confederation, essentially. So many of those little island states there, these would have all been part of it as well. So, um, for example, we have um, numerous, numerous places. So um, it, of course, takes place in Corinth. Um, but we also have um, other numerous places, all part of this agreement here. Um, so they essentially swear an oath that they will uh, support the Macedonians. And this has, it, it does, I think, um, it does seem to have been taken by the majority. So for the most part, um, all of Greece really is still nominally under this control here. Okay. Except the Spartans, of course. The Spartans uh, were were left alone. They they didn't join until much later. Okay, but in this at at, at the point of Alexander's death, the uh, the the city state of Sparta it would have been a city state at this point. Still, yes. still, right? Um, that was not under the kingdom of Macedon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. And these... uh, well, um, actually, sorry, I should clarify. They they do they do join um, in three thirty one BCE. So they they're forced to as part of a sort of making peace with Alexander. They they are forced to, but not at the outset of the campaign. There. I understand. Okay. Yeah, because you're giving treatment to what some of the events before this this point in time, um, and then are, would these be considered? vassal every the, the the various spots that you mentioned there would they be considered vassal states with their own government still or are they were they really considered part of the the kingdom but still might have had some governing functions inside of that context uh certainly it does seem that perhaps for the purposes of maintaining some stability as alexander goes on what ends up being a fairly quick 
uh, campaigned through many of these places. He doesn't seem to have lingered for very long in, in any one place in particular as he's sort of going ever onwards towards the next uh, goal, I suppose, of the campaign. So in many places we do hear of, um, say, for example, if there was a democracy, then Alexander uh, put in an oligarchy instead, or if there was an oligarchy, they put in a democracy, um, maybe just to change up whoever was currently in charge. And um, maybe this is the idea that they will be grateful to Alexander because they were not happy with the previous um, the previous governing system. Uh, so for the most part, we take from that that either they were allowed to maintain their customs as they had previously, or that Alexander changes something and that there's a different kind of administrative system taking place within these different city-states. Uh, but um, yes, they, they still, um, for Athens, for example, they still had um, their normal kind of elected city officials that fulfilled similar roles as what they had in previous um, previous times. Um, but they are ultimately, um, in many ways, not particularly happy with the fact that they have this Macedonian domination. So although um, at various points, we don't seem to hear much action happening in terms of what we have in our sources. And now, of course, we also have to remember that our sources in this period are very much focused on Alexander and the events after his death and these major um, great leaders, I suppose we could call them, these, these figures that absolutely dominate the landscape of this time. Um, so we don't always hear exactly details of what's happening in these smaller states, but in Athens in particular, we can see that there's quite a bit of conflict um, where they have to accept Macedonian control and um, at various points they do actually throw it off and we see this kind of back and forth of various successes getting control of Athens and what they're doing there politically is, is a little bit different each time. So they might, for example, set up a um, a person that's very positively disposed to them and have them in charge of Athens, that they've got sort of pro-Macedonian interests. Um, but of course, the people of Athens might not be very accepting of this. They might not be very happy. They have to bide their time and wait for the next opportunity to revolt. I should note as well, Andrew, just on that note, some of these places were garrisoned with a uh, military force stationed somewhere either close by or within the city itself in order to keep things controlled. So I don't think we should be any, under any illusions that this was um, just accepted by most of these places. Most of, so many of these places were indeed um, kept under control by the very presence of an army um, very close by and um, a sort of permanently stationed garrison at these various points. Okay. In the episode on succession after Alexander's life, the first one that we did of the of the last two, Charlotte, you spent some time sharing um, some of the main sources for after Alexander's life. For this episode, or is it, are we talking about similar sources? Yeah. Um, would be Diodorus, who was, um, we normally know him as Diodorus of, um, of Sicily or Diodorus Siculus. Um, so he was a Greek historian and he wrote um, essentially what we refer to as a world history. So he kind of looks at um, the history of uh, up to the point of sort of Alexander's death. And um, now, unfortunately, some of that has not survived. So it's kind of fragmentary, which is not unusual with our ancient sources. 
Um, so he wrote, though, of various events that are happening um, throughout the world at the time, with not just focusing on the successes. So we get a lot of our information from there. He seems to have used pretty good sources and, um, for the most part, been a, a good um, compiler without, I suppose, a particular agenda. But that said, he is also uh, writing um, after these events, so he's not an eyewitness to these these things himself. Um, so he's writing it about, I suppose, eighty or he's he's we think dates to about eighty to twenty BC. Um, so of course he's not um, a contemporary of the events he's writing about. Um, that said, he does have um, quite a lot of good information for the kind of machinations between these various successes and what they've been up to. Um, and so I suppose that would be a major source for these events after Alexander. Um, we have a few other works that deal with um, various things that relate to the successes and their activities, but of course they have, um, they tend to have their own particular focus. So um, we have, of course, someone like um, Strabo, who's a geographer, um, of course, then looking at things through a slightly different lens. Um, we also have um, some in Justin who wrote um, an epitome of an earlier work, so um, a history by this person called Pompeius Trogus. So yeah, we do have uh, similar information. We also have um, a number of inscriptions and degrees, so particularly from Athens, which as is often the case in the ancient world, tends to be one of our um, places that has a great deal of evidence that has survived from it and they, they made many um, decrees, for example. Um, we have inscriptions that let us know where people were at various times. Even sometimes dedications can uh, reveal quite a lot of information about so perhaps who was allied to who, um, that kind of thing. Um, so the, that um, League of Corinth that I mentioned earlier, we do have a fragmentary inscription found in Athens regarding the particular oath about this. So um, yeah, we, we have some contemporary evidence as well as other sources that talk about it. Okay, I'm gonna ask you the easiest question of this entire episode. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what, hap what happened in the region that we're speaking about, the Greek region, after Alexander's life? Excellent question, and as you say, very straightforward. Um, so, um, so with, with Alexander, um, keep in mind we have this growing tension, we have this growing hostility towards Macedonian control. And um, not only do we have, of course, that succession crisis that I spoke about on our previous episode, we have that succession crisis with the Macedonian generals deciding who is going to um, be their next king and who is going to ultimately control these next kings. So if you recall, we have uh, two rather unsuitable candidates put forward. Um, but not only do we have that kind of crisis happening, but also this time of the death of the king and the succession crisis creates a great deal of instability. And the Athenians, who have been looking, I think, for their moment, have noted now that this could be the moment to strike. So um, this leads into what uh, was described in the scholarship as the Lamian War. So this really only lasts from about 323 to 322 BC. It is short-lived, but we do see from that the, I guess, the tension that we have between this Athens, which of course is very pro-democratic, famously democratic, and this is at odds with the Macedonian control. Of course, they're, they're not ever going to be entirely 
satisfied by their their submission to the Macedonian Empire there. Uh, so in 324 BC, Alexander had created this decree which allowed exiled citizens from various Greek city-states to return to their homes. And they were the other city-states were told to essentially return their property to these exiled citizens. Now, this caused further tension before, especially for Athens, because they had actually occupied some of those territories that had belonged to these various exiled citizens. And uh, as a result, they would be forced to give up these territories back to them. Um, so this did not help at all the relationship between Alexander and uh, the, the city-states, particularly Athens. Um, so they ended up forming a coalition of cities, which of course included Athens, but also what um, we refer to as the Aetolian League. And so the Aetolian League was um, a number of places, particularly in central Greece. Uh, so it's Italy, um, a few others as well, like Matinea, um, Locris, um, and so, what they aimed to do was to form a sort of coalition against Macedonia. Now, they essentially, when they hear of the king's death, there is this outbreak. There's, um, they, they're taking advantage of the fact that we have the successor crisis going on. Uh, there's not a universally accepted king at this point. Uh, the generals are all occupied. Um, and they decided that Athens is indeed going to wage war against Macedon. There's a couple of other details which are kind of interesting here. Alexander's uh, longtime friend and treasurer, this character called Harpalus, uh, he had absconded from his post, basically, as a treasurer, and had fled to Athens there. Um, so he had taken with him some money, or like a substantial quality of precious metals, I believe it's described in, in terms of talent. So a talent is usually uh, anywhere between about 24 to 27 kilos of uh, gold or silver. Um, so a pretty substantial amount of Alexander's money there. Um, if we want to think of it that way, probably not coined, but in, you know, in bullion, precious metal. And he fled to Athens and this had essentially given them um, the opportunity to, they weren't quite sure what to do with Harpalus. He was actually um, imprisoned, but they didn't quite know what to do because this would have given them the opportunity to maybe use the money and, and stir up further rebellions. They did send someone to go and start engaging with mercenaries and build up more force, but they wanted to continue to prepare for the war. So if we go back to 323, this is when we finally have this sort of um, decision to finally just just do it just to, to fight back and to get themselves out of Macedonian control. And they could have had uh, a really good um, advantage here because of course the Macedonian generals were occupied and um, Antipater, who was the regent in Macedonia at this time, um, so he's a quite an older established general that had been in that position for a number of years at this point, you know, for the entirety of Alexander's campaign. He was sort of in charge of keeping things calm in Europe and, and um, managing the, those city-states and, of course, Macedonia itself. Now, he was in need of reinforcements, but we have uh, troops going all over to Asia, or where, you know, Babylonia and where um, the rest of the generals were. We have Craterus, who I spoke about in a previous episode. He was on his way back with Polyperkin um, with the 11,500 veteran soldiers heading back to Macedonia. But everyone was kind of in this transitional state. So Antipater didn't actually have the resources he needed in order to really put down this revolt quickly. Um, so there was some initial success there with the Athenians and their allies trying to um, sort of get 
uh, out of control, out of the Macedonian control. Um, so they possibly were funded by a little bit of this money. Um, we know that some of it went missing. There was a whole episode around that. Um, but eventually, the Athenians were were stopped. So Antipater did have success. He was able to get those reinforcements that he needed. Um, there was a attempt to um, essentially fight back. There was a battle of Cranon that took place in central Thessaly. Um, so it wasn't probably one of the major set pieces that we hear about when we think about the Hellenistic battles, but um, this was eventually forced the Athenians to give up. They were defeated. Um, so this took place in 322 BCE. And because of this, the Antipater was able to make peace with them, but also he forced them to um, dissolve their democracy at the time. So it seems that he felt the richest citizens were more trustworthy than the, um, I suppose, the poorer classes of Athens. So those were um, exiled and only a few richest citizens were left in possession of the city. So you can sort of see how they changed the government system in order to destabilize these city-states and force them to, um, I suppose, adapt to Macedonian control at various points. Um, you would think perhaps it's a rather interesting approach, but I think he, uh, Antipater found that the, um, I guess the the mob had been the ones to stir up rebellion. So he chooses to keep the wealthiest citizens, perhaps even slightly more well disposed to people like Antipater, and um, everyone else is exiled. So that is pretty much the end of the uh, Athenian revolt at this time. But as I mentioned, as they come under control of various successor kings in the subsequent years, they do attempt to, to sort of balance that relationship at various points. But often, if they have an opportunity, they will throw out whoever's in control. So this happens again in 301 BC. Uh, at this point, uh, Athens is under the control of the Antigonids. Um, but as soon as they lose at the Battle of Ipsus, the Athenians immediately decide that they're going to ban kings from their city, and they try and hold out for as long as they can. Um, so I would say Athens in particular really stands out as an example that um, took multiple opportunities to um, try and essentially rid themselves of Macedonian control with various successor control. Um, but it is worth noting that some places felt that they could have a positive relationship with the various successes. Uh, if you could ally yourself to a king, you would have protection, of course. You might be able to continue um, your usual democratic or your usual political practices, that sort of thing. And we see less, perhaps, hostility in general. Um, Corinth would be an example of that, which seems to have continued to flourish under Macedonian control. Um, and they seem to have had um, quite a lot of prosperity under the Macedonians. And they, they seem to have a kind of relationship where they um, they were well regarded as a strategic position, but they kind of had a more positive relationship rather than Athens, which seems to have been um, one of short periods of peace followed by hostility. The first uh year that you mentioned you'd mentioned um a, a year i believe was it uh, when when you you said that the initial re revolt was uh the athenian revolt i believe you said was un unsuccessful yeah. was that uh 322 was that the year 
that you referenced? Uh, that that was um, yeah. So it sort of starts in three twenty three with sort of Alexander's death. Remember, and um, that we date that to the eleventh of June. Uh, but yes, by three twenty two, uh, this revolt had been put uh, put down. I suppose we would say. Um, so uh, as soon as Antipater was able to be reinforced by um, Craterus arriving with those veterans, the Macedonians were finally able to defeat that coalition there. Okay, so, and what I was getting at with the question, but I wanted to clarify the date, and, uh, and it completely makes, makes sense um, chronologically, um, being after Alexander's life. So that, um, would that have been uh, part of the Aetolian League? Do, do scholars consider that the, the Aetolian League, or was that Athens independently uh, re revolting? Uh, that, yeah, that would have been Athens with the Aetolian League. So they sort of combined together and shared forces and, and they had some support from various mercenaries that they've been able to employ as well. Um, so I think it was roughly about half and half um, Athenian numbers with Aetolians and then their allies there. So it was a combination of, of both of them, but um, yeah, and both were uh, essentially defeated. Um, during this engagement there was a series of sort of long series of engagements uh, there was a few of them um the athenian navy was also there was a sort of there was a naval engagement as well during this time um but this was also defeated um as well uh, so it's not uncommon during this period that we see uh numerous engagements of various forms um so it's not unusual at all to find um say like a naval engagement as well as a what we might think of as a pitch battles at a particular place, usually chosen for one side's strategic advantage if they could, um, and then the two armies will meet together. And um, during this particular battle, it seems that um, the the Macedonians were just able to get best of them during this, and the Athenians um, just were forced to forced to ret retreat rather. When you observe the geographic demarcation that you um, provided in your response, in the first response around um, the Greek uh, Greek region. Uh, do you have any sense of, so so based on that, that region, do you have any sense of how much support the Aetolian League would have would have had as a as a percentage or a different way to quantify it? What I'm getting at is, is it the entire Greek region? Is it a few city states? Is it is it more than that? Uh... Hmm, that's an interesting one. I mean, not all of the places that could have um, actually did join this anti-Macedonian force. So whether or not that's because they didn't um, want to go against the Macedonians because they supported them or whether that was more of a question of resources or more of a question of a, maybe a fractured relationship with the these particular states. Um, so it was, um, I suppose... A substantial force I think we see about um, sort of 25,000 um, Macedonians uh, or sorry not Macedonians anti-Macedonian force that would have been about 25,000 perhaps um, but of course only a very small fraction compared to what the Macedonians have at their disposal and of course this is not a whole entire revolt of all of these Greek city states against the Macedonians we never really see um, that kind of alliance, I don't think. We really never see um, what we might consider of, of as the entirety of Greece united 
towards one common goal. Now, certainly the Macedonians claimed this at various points. We have this sort of freedom of the Greeks and these various leagues um, by Philip, of course, we have Alexander and then the Antagonists also adopt this as their reason for war as well. But in actual practice, this is really not representative of the entirety of these different places. Um, so I suppose if we wanted to consider um, who's not there, I mean, we, we, um, we, we still have a substantial amount of, I guess, the Mediterranean Peloponnese that are not participating in this uh, particular revolt. Um, Sparta, of course, I mentioned previously, also occasionally um, made some attempts to, um, I guess, free themselves, but by 331, they are also brought under control. Um, they never really try again. We do hear of, uh, or at least in this particular period, we do hear of um, Alexander, oh, sorry, not Alexander, of Demetrius going to Sparta and engaging them in a military engagement. He almost, according to Plutarch, at least almost takes the city, but then is distracted by other city-state, but is distracted by other other things going on. So Sparta sort of makes it out once again, just purely based on uh, on Demetrius having you know greater ambition at that time. So so Plutarch tells us anyway. Um, so all that to say, um, this really was Athens and a few allies that were. Um, prompted during this time to sort of make a make an attempt to get it free, um, but it was, it's worth noting as well within Athens itself there seems to have been some manner of debate as to whether or not they should do this, and they were they were not entirely um, I suppose united on that, but they they sort of voted, and um, it does seem that the the people who wanted to take their chances against um, Macedonia were. Um, were involved, I suppose. Um, Boeotia, in um, sort of towards the north there, if we think geographically, um, they, they're on the Macedonian side. Okay. So in the episode that we did, Charlotte, on succession after Alexander's life, that was the one published on July 26th, we had agreed prior, in, and in the episode, we focused on, for the most part, uh, 15 years maybe up to 20 years or so after Alexander's life was sort of the demarcation of that conversation. So when it comes to, uh, if, if, if we, if we treat this conversation similarly, can you, can you share what would have been going on from a kingdom of Macedon perspective from a, a uh, sovereign perspective? So who the, who the king or kings would have been in that previous episode we uh, spoke quite a bit and you provided a lot of details on all the different figures Ro roxanna at, at, the, at the time was um, pregnant with alexander's um, uh, son at, who became alexander the fourth there was an individual who was a half brother named Eridaeus. you mentioned some other people in this this ep episode like I, I believe you mentioned Particus at one point, Antipatha. You you mentioned a, uh, a few times. Um, so there's and and there's more and there's more more individuals than than that involved in in this this kind of conversation. So is there a way that you can uh, kind of can you can you treat that you know 15, 20 years after Alexander's life from a who's who's the actual sovereign 
of the kingdom of, of, of Macedon? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about uh, how things are changing and developing during this, this sort of period. And it's certainly a period of transition as well. I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, people sort of on the very cusp of seizing power and they just don't quite make it. So um, to talk about a few people that are particularly important to, uh, I suppose, Macedonia, Europe, and, and by extension, many of these Greek city states at the time. Um, so keeping in mind that at the point of Alexander's death, we have Antipater there as regent in Macedonia. He's keeping control of things in Europe. He is uh, responsible for sort of marshalling that defense against the Lamian revolt that I mentioned there. Um, so Antipater, he is um, at this point accepted in this particular role. Now, at, just before Alexander died, uh, it does seem that he may have summoned Antipater to the court where Alexander was over in um, Asia at this time, um, but he doesn't go. He sends his son Cassandra there in his place as a sort of messenger to it about um, 324 BC. We think he's probably there when Alexander dies. We don't hear much of him in those first initial couple of years. Um, and the, the sources themselves are fairly hostile to the or to Antipater and, and, well, mainly Cassander, and they're all sort of implicated in this idea that maybe Cassander was actually sent to uh, Babylon with poison for Alexander. So there's this idea there, um, which we tend to dismiss in scholarship, but I think the kernel of the idea is quite important. I think it shows the contemporary hostility that brewed around the Antipaterans very quickly um, and close to Alexander's death. Um, so Cassander... Um, initially, he misses out on the regency, so when Antipater uh, dies, they ex he expects that Cassander, well, everyone would expect that Cassander would take over that, but instead it goes to uh, someone else instead, so he misses out on the regency. Um, so by 317, he revolts against this idea. He actually takes the regency. Um, considers himself to be the regent. This is accepted by the wife of Philip Aridaeus, this woman called Eurydice, or sometimes referred to as Adia Eurydice. She seems to have taken on that second name, Eurydice, as a sort of dynastic name after her marriage. Um, and he, he begins to expand his power in Greece at this point. So he's a bit of a de facto ruler from about 317 onwards. He's not officially titled by king or anything like that at this point, but he's slowly expanding his influence. And he's actually not just um, doing this through warfare, but he seems to have had this idea that he could also develop very positive relationships to some of these places. So, for example, he found cities. So he found um, the city of... Um, what we refer to now today is um, Thessaloniki. So it was Thessalonica, which was named after his wife that he married uh, during this time, a half-sister of Alexander the Great. Um, but another thing that he does during this time is he actually allows the um, city of Thebes to be rebuilt. So in 315, um, he's, he issues a decree that this is going to happen and um, other places contribute to the rebuilding of Thebes. Now, why is this significant? Well, Alexander had actually destroyed the city um, quite uh, um, many years previously, in about 335 BC. So um, Alexander had destroyed the city and the sources tell us that he somewhat regrets his harsh treatment of Thebes. It sort of was seen to be a bit excessive what he did. 
Um, so Cassandra, during this time, he is making these connections with um, the the family members of Philip. So that, for example, the marriage of with Tuesday Thessaloniki. He is rebuilding projects. Other places are involved. Um, so he's sort of trying to establish himself in power. And by the time we get to 305, that's when we consider Cassandra has adopted the royal title at that point. So he rules from then on from about 305 to 297 BC. He seems to have died of um, something we can't quite identify, tends to be um, considered to be maybe dropsy or tuberculosis, something of that nature, but we, we don't know for sure uh, exactly what um, what the the medical affliction, I suppose, was. Um, but during this time, he also establishes one of his, um, I suppose, supporters in Athens. So he establishes this person, Demetrius, uh, not Demetrius the besieger, but a different Demetrius, Demetrius of Valera, and he is in charge of um, Athens. Um, he is the sole ruler for about 10 years in Athens there. So um, not very popular with the pro-democratic group and the poor classes. Um, so this sort of sets the scene. Um, Demetrius then re reforms the legal system and apparently had actually done some quite good work, but of course, um, many of the Athenians were not happy with them. So because of this, he is actually expelled later and it sort of sets the scene for the Antigonids to come in and get involved with Athens. And they are initially um, pretty grateful, or at least they, they seem to be quite celebratory of the Antigonid victory over um, Cassander. So we kind of see it around 307 is again this turning point there. So um, Athens had been under Cassander's control, but then it comes under Antigonid's control. Athens is more or less uh, under Antigonid control for the next few years, probably we could consider down to 301, comes back under Demetrius's control in the 290s, um, and then towards the end after Demetrius is expelled for the last time, we actually have Pyrrhus, Epirus, and Lysimachus getting involved there in the city. So those would be the people um, that I would consider to be having the most to do with the Greek city-states, especially um, Athens in particular during this time period uh, as we continue down, I suppose, the time, the timeline there. And the Demetrius in the, in the, in the latter citation, is that the, um, the, the Demetrius with the epithet, the, the besieger that you co-authored yes. a book on? Exactly. Yeah. So we have quite a few uh, Demetriuses in, during this time, but yes. Uh, so that would be Demetrius the besieger expelling De uh, Demetrius of Phalerum there. Um, so that would be the, the statesman Demetrius, though. Yeah, very popular name at the time. Yeah, I, I think we chatted about this in uh, in one in one of the previous episodes about uh, sometimes these these chats have the multiple you know material figures with the same name and, and it can be tricky yeah. so I've, I've been there before so I've, I've I've sharpened the I've sharpened the pencil on uh, on some of these questions on <laughs> when this comes up <laughs> um, okay so is it that based on what you shared there it it sounds like the that it, the entire region doesn't always have just one sovereign ruling it is that a general way of saying saying that because you used examples of athens specifically um but then it's but but that but that would only be one area in the At attica 
area there. Is that a general way to to um, to, to describe it? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, um, I think in this period, um, I guess at the very top, we usually have a successor king that is at least nominally in control of a particular region. And then within each of these city-states themselves, there might be a particular structure. So they might have an oligarchy where they have a sort of um, the elite few rulers, or um, they might have someone established as a um, particular person that is in connection to this place that is acting on behalf of one of the successor kings. So that would be the instance of that Demetrius of Galeron there. He is established on behalf of um, Cassandra. So he may have operated, um, I guess, in the on the sort of day-to-day um, as being able to do as he wished, but ultimately he has been installed in that position because he's apparently favorable or loyal to the Macedonian king. And this allows the region to stay uh, stable and under control and it's not gonna revolt against the person or suddenly betray them to the other side or any of the other sides as they, they tended to be. Um, we do have examples of various points where some of our the interactions kind of give us a bit of a clue as to um, maybe what's happening at various points. So, for example, Thebes actually revolts against um, Demetrius later when he has this um, under control. So this is that um, Boeotia region, once again, that's sort of in central central Greece and the largest city of that is Thebes. So they, um, they revolt against Demetrius at various points after he's become the king of Macedonia himself. Um, but once he approaches, they surrender and he actually ends up establishing someone who is loyal to him in this um, particular place just to sort of keep it under control. Um, so in that instance, this is probably happening about 293 to 292 BCE and he, um, he establishes this individual called Hieronymus of Cardia um, in, in Thebes itself. So it's not unusual to find an instance where um, one of these places has been operating more or less peacefully under successor control. They see an opportunity to revolt and they, they do so. And then um, this is either put down through some sort of negotiation or sometimes through um, a siege, you know, by more violent means. And then something might be placed in like such as a garrison or an individual perhaps supported by a garrison to just keep things calm again and keep things um, under control there. Um, that, that for what it's worth, there was a second revolt of the Thebans um, very soon after that. Um, so it doesn't necessarily um, mean that they're not gonna try again, I suppose. But um, certainly I think if we consider it having um, sort of the successes at the top, more or less trying to hold on to places and having varying degrees of success with that. So sometimes they seem to have had a good relationship for quite some time. This would be the instance with a place like um, Corinth, for example, seems to have been um, fine in, in terms of their acceptance of Macedonian control, but other places seem to have as soon as they had the opportunity, and they did have many because the successes were so constantly in conflict with one another, um, as soon as they had that opportunity, they would seize it and uh, see what they could get away with, essentially. What? It's worth noting as well with that Theban campaign, um, Paris gets involved there as well. So we have um, Demetrius trying to deal with the revolt of the Thebans, then Paris immediately goes into Demetrius's territory and, and stirs up further, further trouble there as well. 
was Cassander then de facto king of Macedon from 317 to 305, and then officially king of Macedon from 305 to 297? Uh, yes, well, yeah, sort of pretty much a de facto ruler at that point. They're kind of acting in, in, as kings and everything but name. Cassandra seems to have adopted a bit more of a um, traditional, perhaps, approach. He's sort of harking back to Philip rather than Alexander. There's some suggestion that they didn't like each other, Alexander and Cassandra. Not quite sure if that stands up in the source evidence, but he doesn't seem to have participated in Alexander's campaign. Um, so he's probably born roughly around the 350s as well, similar to Alexander. They likely knew each other from childhood or like from a young age. Um, but he doesn't seem to have participated in Alexander's military campaign. He doesn't really seem to show up until 324 BCE. Um, but essentially, yes, he, he's been operating as a ruler from 317 or so um, at the time when he revolts against the regency where Polly Perkin was the person who was chosen to be a regent instead. Um, and, and Cassandra was one of the, the later ones to adopt the kingship. We think that it sort of was um, the Antigonids first and then Ptolemy and Seleucus followed and then Lysimachus and Cassander were probably the last two to do so there. Okay, so in that period, the 317 to 297, there would, there would, there would be no other uh, sovereign, whether, whether they've, they've, uh, they, they, they're calling them king, king or king or not. So I'll, I'll use the term sovereign in this in this case. So there would there was no other sovereign of the kingdom of Macedon in in that in that period, the three seventeen to two ninety seven. It would have been Cassander. Yes, and and part of the reason for that is we kind of have our our assassinations of the legitimate kings in these years. So in three seventeen is when. Um, Philip Aridaeus is assassinated. Um, so this is probably occurring um, towards the end of the year there in, in 317. So the, the, the problem for the successors has been to make sure that they are acting legitimate as the sort of heirs to Alexander and administering his kingdom as Alexander would have wanted them to do. Uh, but with the, with the elimination of the last of the Argeids, um, which follows in the, in the next few years uh, down to um, we, we next have the death of um, in, three, in 310, 309 or so, we have the death of Alexander IV and his mother. Um, so that's, this is, of course, at the instigation of Cassander. Um, so as this is happening, they no longer have any pretense to the fact that there are legitimate kings. Um, so yes, they're very careful in the way they present themselves because, of course, they need um, to show that they have got power legitimately and um, at the same time this is kind of at odds with what they're doing they are eliminating rivals as soon as they can get a hold of them so so goes Aridaeus um, Adea Eurydice also is killed um, Cassander is responsible for the death of Alexander's mother Olympias um, he's um, he, he murders um, Alexander IV and Roxanne um, Alexander's other leg illegitimate child, uh, usually considered illegitimate child, uh, a certain Her Heracles, last potential possible person that could have had a claim to the Argeid kingship as a legitimate heir. Um, he's also murdered as well by Polyperkin. So once we have all of these kings or would-be kings out of the way, 
um, then we kind of see it as a change for the successors. They they sort of adopt royal titles, and um, at this point, uh, yeah, we could, we could probably consider that Cassander is consolidating his power there. Um, that's not to say that he isn't in conflict because um, the antagonists sort of target Cassander and they, they, that's when they start stirring up the idea of freeing the Greeks from um, Cassander. They get some support for that. Um, but um, essentially, yes, that, that would be, I could say, the major power in that region at that time. So a closing question then, if we, um, so if we use 297 as a, it's a, it's a bit arbitrary, but I think it works to, as a, as a, uh, as, as a year approximately, so approximately 297 to, um, to wrap up the conversation. And if we, and if we um, leverage the first question and, and response um, Charlotte, as it pertains to geographic demarcation. So at 297 or around 297, can you describe what the geographic demarcation would have been in the Greek, in the Greek region uh, of the kingdom of, so in, of the kingdom of Macedon as it pertains to the Greek region? And, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm aware based on your responses and you've given, you're certainly given treatment that in that period that we spoke, spoke a bit more about in the 317 to 297, there was various revolts and it sounded like some areas uh, may have um, been very comfortable with, with the relationship with the kingdom of Macedon and others, it probably sounds like there is acquiescence and then others, there was outright revolts. But if you, if you look at 297 or approximately, how would you describe what the geographic demarcation uh, was of the, of the Greek region that we're speaking about today as it pertains to the Kingdom of Macedon? So in about 297, we have, yes, the death of uh, Cassander, who is succeeded by his son, so another Philip there. Um, but his son doesn't last for, for very long. So he um, only seems to have ruled for perhaps a few months even. Um, during this time, if we consider, um, I suppose, northern, the northern, if we, if we consider where central Greece is or Greece is today, and we consider north, um, Macedonia uh, basically includes um, all of that northern territory there. Um, we have Paris restored to the Epirate throne, so Epirus, so um, that that would probably be in 298, possibly between 297 um, BC. So we have Paris there in that geographical um, area. Um, so still in the sort of same uh, space, but again, um, sort of on the border of Macedonia. Uh, what we have in I guess where Athens is, um, we have within a few years there, Demetrius returning from, he sort of had his failed attempt in Ipsos and he's been kind of regathering forces during this time. So in about 295, um, he's actually on his way back to reclaim Athens and he's, um, he also diverts into the Peloponnese. So he brings the Peloponnese under control there. He has a siege against Mycenae or possibly a couple of sieges there. Um, so he sort of brings the Peloponnese under his control. So during that time, um, we could consider 
Demetrius to have a solid control over those particular areas of, um, if we think about the Mediterranean, we think about the Peloponnese, um, and then he, he does indeed bring Athens under control there. Um, he does begin his operations against Sparta, possibly in the spring and or summer of 295, um, but he wouldn't, um, wouldn't pursue that further. So I guess we could consider that tip of the Peloponnese to be, um, I guess, doing more or less operating independently at that point, um, still under threat, but keeping things um, under control. We have Lysimachus in, in um, Thrace, in sort of in the north there. Um, we have the former territories of Antagonus or the Antagonan dynasty that were sort of, I guess, along the, um, the coast on the other side, so going into sort of um, Asia Minor, um, where we have Turkey and, and that sort of thing, or Syria. Um, these have all been kind of claimed by Seleucus at this point, but um, with some back and forth between himself and Ptolemy about particular areas. And then, of course, remember from last time, um, Ptolemy has firmly entrenched himself in Egypt. So that's pretty much what we have in terms of the division there. Um, there's a few other... Um, I mean, there, there's still a few independent states holding out at various points. So Messini does seem to have um, regained some independence at various points. And um, then we have, of course, um, Demetrius takes over. Um, all of these places eventually will uh, kick Demetrius out for, for what it was worth. He sort of, he loses Macedonia um, not long after he's, he's gained it and he sort of, um, sort of loses many possessions as he goes through and he begins his campaign to try and um, uncover his father's former empire or the former empire that they ruled together. Um, so there's plenty of fluidity, I think, during this time period. It's almost very difficult to capture in one year a sort of static state. Um, many of these places seem to change hands um, multiple times, um, so it's not unusual at all to see that um, some place has gone under various, um, I guess, renditions of control at various points there. Um, but but certainly, I would say um, we kind of have Demetrius operating and, and having quite a strong presence in the, the from probably two ninety seven down to two ninety. 95 or so, he's, he's really got a pretty firm presence in, in, um, in central Greece, I suppose, and um, the Peloponnese there during that time. So, and I want to clarify, Charlotte, uh, at 297 or approximately, was Sparta still independent? Uh, yes, essentially. So recall, of course, that they had had to given to Alexander in about 331, um, but at this point they seem to have been because there's this opportunity for Demetrius to make an attack on, on Sparta during the, the 290s there, so essentially it was. Okay, yeah, and you'd um, mentioned the, how a lot of things change in this, this period, and when looking at various historical topics, uh, it's, it's common, as you know, to see some tumultuousness, um, but it certainly seems like that's uh, punctuated in this uh, in this period of time with this with uh, with this topic. So, yeah. So, Charlotte, it's uh, been great having you on the show again. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge on this topic. Oh, it was wonderful. I'm always very happy to uh, talk about the 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 
the various uh, shenanigans, I suppose, of the successes and, and what they got up to during this time. It's an enormously complex but eternally fascinating uh, time period to me. All right, Charlotte, have a great evening in Australia. Take care. Thanks, Andrew. The book, everybody, that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Dunn co-authored, it's entitled Demetrius the Besieger. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Charlotte and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.